Dress, the History of Fashion, is a production of iHeartRadio. With over 8 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast that explores the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassie Zachary and April Callahan. Well, dress listeners, I hope that all of you are ready to saddle up for today's episode, um, <laughs> which is an exploration of one of the most iconic looks American dress history has ever produced. We are, of course, talking about Western wear. And we all certainly know Western wear when we see it, right, Cass? You know? Oh, yes, we do. <laughs> the boots, the jeans, those like very distinctive yoked shirts, which oftentimes feature really gorgeous embroidery, sometimes beading, pearl buttons. You know, Western wear has this very distinctive flair, which traces its roots to a very specific place and time in American history. And Cass, the cultural cross-pollination of clothing styles of the American West is actually something that you are especially interested in. And I was wondering if you'd be willing to share just a little bit about what you are up to in this sphere with our listeners. Yeah, thank you for asking. I mean, I think something that's really fascinates me about, you know, so-called American Western wear is that, you know, in many ways it isn't American at all. And so when you really start peeling back the layers of many of those myths associated with the so-called West, I mean, it's been so romanticized, right, and stereotyped in popular culture to the point that it almost completely masks, you know, the often violent colonial history that has in many ways shaped this country and how we dress or perceive how we've dressed in the past. So, I mean, there's so much to talk about in relationship to this topic and something we are, of course, excited to dive into today with our guest, Dr. Sonia Abrego. Sonia joins us to take us on a journey exploring Western wear's multicultural workwear origins and how the look of the West came to be co-opted by mainstream fashion, as so much does in the history mm -hmm. of dress. <laughs> and her book, Western Wear, Post-War American Fashion and Culture, speaks about some of those realities and mythologies surrounding the West and how cowboy and, of course, cowgirl pop culture came to be part of the American fashion fantasy in the post-World War II era. A design historian who specializes in American fashion, Dr. Abrego lives and works in New York City, where she teaches at Parsons School of Design, the Fashion Institute of Technology, and Fordham University. She is currently a curatorial fellow at the Center for Craft in Asheville, North Carolina, where her exhibition, Crafting Denim, Making American Jeans Today, will open next month in just a few short weeks in February of 2023. Dr. Abrego, we are delighted to have you. Welcome. Sonia, a very warm welcome to Dressed. Thank you. Yes, we're happy to have you here today. And I just want to say that as somebody who considers American fashion in particular an area of my specialty, I was delighted to read your book. I've done a lot of work as a fashion historian in this period, kind of like leading up to and just after World War II, but I had not yet made this sort of deep dive into topic of the origins of Western wear and its influence on American fashion. So it was a really enjoyable read. Thank you. I'm glad you liked it. <laughs> yeah. So I'm hoping first that you might tell us a little bit about 
your journey to becoming a fashion historian and what specifically led you to your very special interest in Western wear? Uh, great. Thanks. So, I mean, it was a long and winding road. Um, I never set out to be a fashion historian because I didn't know that that existed as an option in the world um, until I was, you know, um, already in my in my 20s. I um, actually have a science degree, but uh, I was just really, really engaged and obsessed with vintage clothing and wearing it, buying it, selling it, uh, finding as much as I could on my own, and eventually kind of came across the idea. I liked art history and I liked art, but I, I didn't really know that the idea of like design history or by extension, like fashion history could be a field or was a field. And so, mm -hmm. you know, that was delightful. So on one hand, I'm doing this sort of hands-on work with, with the marketplace and, and vintage, and then thinking about studying it and going back to graduate school and, um, and never stopping. <laughs> So how did you find your way into Western wear? Well, it was always kind of a, around me as an interest, um, whether that's sort of through like um, kind of 50s rock and roll or interested in kind of mid-century style. You know, I, I grew up in Western Canada where I, I actually wasn't that interested in it growing up because it was kind of really just average and normal. Um, I didn't really think of it as a separate thing. And in terms of studies, I was interested in American fashion. I knew I wanted to do something that wasn't elite, that wasn't couture, that had some connections with popular culture and, and music and film and Western wear is really, really all of those. And, and nobody had really written about it. Um, I mean, I should put that with an asterisk. I know there's these great books by Tyler Beard, who was a, a collector who's kind of documented a lot. There was a exhibition at the Autry Museum about 20 years ago. I mean, there, there, and there's biographies of some of the designers, some of the rodeo tailors, but in terms of the cultural history and those interconnections, there wasn't a lot there. And when you start looking at, for it, it's really everywhere. And there, and there hadn't really been those, that kind of contextual yet. So I thought that was a, a good place for me to, to work with. Yeah, no, it, it was, it was fascinating because your book literally fills in so many of those gaps and, and gaps that I didn't even really know were there until I read your book. But before we can even really get to the topic of Western wear, it seems more than necessary to kind of define our use of the term the West as in the American West. So how would you like to designate the use of this term, the West, for our purposes today on the podcast? Sure. Well, the West is is a slippery concept in a lot of ways. In beginning this sort of work, I mean, there was this idea um, and comments of like, you know, we had to define it. Well, the deeper I got into the literature and into American studies, nobody really wants to call it um, in terms mm -hmm. of geography, right? Uh, there's this term, and it's an older term, the, the Trans-Mississippi West. So that would be basically anything west of that river. I think that's still a, a relatively like, decent definition. It's also complicated by this idea of, you know, the, the frontier, which is highly politicized, but the frontier and Western expansion in the 19th century, which was with moving, right? And this was sort of a, a, a dynamic border for a bit based on, on, on that conquest, um, which was quote unquote labeled closed in, you know, the 1890s. And, you know, that 
has framed so much of the, the thinking around this. But the West is also this mythological West too. Yes. And, and all the symbols and ideology that's wrapped up in that. So, you know, the real West and the West of the imagination, they're they're pretty much blurred. But it's kind of like, you know, we know it when we see it, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, you know, like more than any, like perhaps geographical locale, and especially when we're using this term, the Old West, and you point out in the book that maybe that myth is also pointing us to a specific period of time in the 19th century. And it's a very specific period of time when there are all of these different intersections of culture in that geography at the precise moment. So do you want to talk about the intersections of culture there at that time a little bit? Right. So like the this idea of the Old West and uh, the mythology around it's definitely lived longer than this actual historical time frame, right? Which is still not even so clearly defined. We're talking about maybe about the end of the Civil War to maybe about the 1890s, you know, give or take, but kind of treated as a pre-industrial moment, even though there was still industry in the United States, that's kind of how it's envisioned. So there's a, a there's the place, the landscape, but also the chronology that's, that's sort of vague. But in terms of the population, I mean, it's always been diverse. I mean, the Indigenous communities that were originally here, you already have a vast variety of, you know, cultures and traditions there. Immigration um, from all over the world. And of course, there were people in the United States brought here involuntarily as well. This was a time that also a lot of newer communities were sort of developing up and around people who are already here and then people who are newly coming in. So mm-hmm. it was um, very kind of mixed. And I guess that's part of where like the wildness, quote unquote, of the Wild West comes up. This kind of idea of like kind of before Law and Order fully took over. Right. And there was a lot of in-between uh, spaces for that. Um, when really, I mean, most working cowboys were just, just agrarian workers. Right. I mean, they're shepherding cattle with, with if they were armed, that was, you know, for protecting from the elements more than than being some kind of action hero. So it was uh, it's uh, definitely a kind of colorful retelling in the service of the dominant culture that erases like a lot of the reality and the identities of the people yeah. that were really making it happen. I think that in the book, you note that it's either one out of four or one out of five American cowboys at this time was black. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the numbers are not that easy to come by, um, really, for any demographics at this at this moment in history. But mm-hmm. yeah, absolutely. There are African-American cowboys. They're participating in Western lifestyle for probably the same reasons as, as anybody would, having a little bit more flexibility, freedom, travel. So that's as working cattle hands, but that's also in competitive sports like rodeo, hugely successful African-American cowboys, part of that um, and working. And yeah, absolutely. There was also a huge uh, Chinese population in the West that was connected to ranching cattle culture in different ways. Immigrants from all over Eastern Europe, Northern Europe, Western Europe also kind of coming to to be a part of it as well. So it was you would we would have had a lot of different languages, a lot of different backgrounds, and a lot of different uh, cultures in the mix. Just yeah. like America now, um, unfortunately, that's not necessarily the representations that have been re- given to us over the years. And in terms of Western wear, you actually talk about it in the book that Western wear has always, and I'm quoting you, been a hybrid aesthetic drawing from the craft and dress of Native American cultures 
Mexico, Spanish cattle culture, and European settlers. Western wear is effectively a material index of the diversity of the American West. I'm hoping that you might talk a little bit about some of the very specific cultural contributions of all of these various cultures blending together to create what we now think of as Western wear. Well, we think of it as, you know, it's a salve, it's a whole, and things do blend together, and we've seen them combine different ways. But if you sort of pause to pick it apart, you can think of things like fringe leather, buckskins, comes from Native American dress. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm saying that quite generally because different indigenous groups um, wore and used these materials in different ways. There was tons of regional specificity, right? But overall, that was something that was um, taken from what indigenous people were already using and wearing here. Thinking about chaps, right, to protect the legs, um, comes from a Spanish word, chapajeros, like to cover the legs on horseback, the heeled, high-heeled boots too. So originally, um, a lot of those attributes of riding and cattle culture came from this continent's first imperial power, right, Spain, and worked its way up from the the south. Also, the wide-brim sombrero hats, right? Kind of a cowboy hat is really just a a variation on that. And then you have some of the more decorative elements. Um, Sometimes you'll see beadwork, again, connected to Native American traditions. You'll see Mm -hmm. um, weaving or, or motifs derived from something that might look a little bit like Navajo weaving, although not quite, right? Like variations on that. And then there's all the embellishment, like the decorative embroidery, right? Big, beautiful floral embroideries, where you see that in Mexican traditions. You also see that in um, Eastern Europe. A lot of the uh, rodeo tailors, the ones that got really famous, like Nudie and Rodeo Ben and Nathan Turk were came from Eastern European Jewish backgrounds. And so they brought that as well into the mix. And the kind of flashier um, silver embellishment, again, coming from you know Mexican charros from that ranching and cattle culture. There's a lot, a lot of connections there. And the, not that all of these elements are used in every single Western ensemble, right? Mm-hmm. There's different ways, there's different applications. There's always been more flamboyant and fanciful versions. And there's always been kind of the, the basic kind of work clothes, which also just comes from, you know, a lot of it's has the origins and just European workwear too. Right. So they all do inform one another. Yeah. Well, I mean, its origins being in workwear, I'm curious how the look of the West became known to popular culture at large, right? If if it really was truly workwear, how was Western style disseminated to the masses? Well, I think Hollywood has a lot to, um, we can we can thank them for that. The movies definitely have a lot to do with it. Western films have been a, a, around in this nation for as long as there have been films, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, as uh, probably a lot of your listeners know, with costume design in Hollywood, um, things were pretty creative and experimental in the early years. Mm-hmm. And this is all about, you know, the visual excitement and engagement, particularly before there were like talking movies. Um, So they're going to be playing up the decorative elements of Western style. And that's not even that exaggerated. If you look at a charo suit with those, you know, the braid and the silver buckles, um, the silver conchos going, you know, down the legs and finishing up the jackets, it lent itself well to performance. It lent itself well to film. Um, But there was also art and print culture, right? There was posters, there were um, dime novels, there was, you know, painting and, and and things like lithographs and stuff like circulating that were really kind of having these, you know, beautiful renderings of these idealized, you know, cowboys in, in their natural environments. 
But the garments themselves, I mean, a lot of them earlier were tailor-made. I mean, that's at all levels. I mean, the more decorative, more elite ones, absolutely. But even kind of handmade at home for the former regular Western work clothes. Uh, but by the early 20th century, you can already start seeing some of these examples in catalogs, in mail order catalogs. And sometimes that was saddleries, like places where people were also getting other equipment so it's kind of like fitting the clothing into part of the cowboy's toolkit in a way. But then you also see them in mainstream national mail order companies like Montgomery Ward or Macy's. They start offering Western examples kind of bit by bit um, that weren't necessarily specialty Western catalogs. So there was the option in in some ways to get this nationally. Um, it wasn't a, it was still pretty regional in the beginning of the 20th century and still kind of piecemeal, mixing a little bit of handmade, mixing a little bit of tailor-made, mixing a little bit of off-the-rack workwear, which kind of gives it its unique qualities, but also makes it a little bit hard to pin down. This leads me precisely into the next question that I wanted to ask you, because in one of your chapters, you focus specifically on the merchandise and kind of like the inner business workings of four specific companies. Which brands did you choose to focus on and what types of sources were available to you when you were conducting your, because your research really is material culture based. What kind of sources were available to you from those companies? I focus on four companies I kind of call my my case study companies. Um, mm -hmm. That is Lee Jeans, uh, Wrangler Jeans, Miller Stockman, which is a, they still exist as Miller International, but they had catalogs. So they were putting out Western clothing catalogs that included a bunch of different brands and their own line um, that was mostly Western shirts. And Pendleton, Pendleton Woolen Mills in, out of Oregon. So um, I chose these companies because, well, they still exist and they have very long histories and I think they're all quite significant and they haven't really been documented um, thoroughly to date. So it was it was fun to be able to dig into that and they all graciously allowed me access to their archives. So that was huge uh, in being able to spend some, some time there and working with them because this sort of material is not well represented in costume collections. I had the ability to work with the Autry Museum on a fellowship. They have a beautiful collection. Most of it is performance apparel, and a lot of it is connected to Gene Autry's own personal massive wardrobe. Mm -hmm. um, I was able to work with the National Cowboy Heritage Museum in Oklahoma City. They have a collection of apparel mixed in with, with their holdings, which is great, but by and large, Work clothes, working people's clothes, even kind of middle market clothes are not that well represented. So it was a huge benefit to be able to work directly with the companies and their holdings themselves. And, you know, some are larger than others. This sort of preservation of the garments, even in, you know, a, a brand like Lee that's been around since the end of the 19th century that has had such an impact that still exists. The, the holdings are relatively small. I mean, they're great and they're getting better, but workwear wasn't something that was kept and valued. And um, these they were running a business, right? They weren't necessarily in the history business or in the practice of archiving materials and records and, and that kind of thing. So even with these sources and having this great access, it's still very much an active recovery. So it was wonderful to be able to work um, with them and that's to be able to get hands-on with the garments 
which is absolutely necessary for someone like me. Um, I don't always believe it what I see on, on screens until I've handled them um, myself. But that's also the business records, which again, going back this far, my, my, my period starts in 1947, 1945. They don't always have a lot of that documentation that's okay but what i was able to do and you know thankfully with their cooperation was kind of interrogate a lot of the sort of company lore there's a lot of repeated stories in the kind of heritage branding of a lot of these brands that um it just gets told over and over again but then when you actually look back into it it may be it didn't happen or didn't happen in that manner or didn't happen at that time right um okay. because it became sort of the the province of a marketing department and not really um going back to the historical record so it was really wonderful to be able to to do that and i should say um a lot the book wouldn't have happened without being able to see those archives but it also wouldn't have happened without years of experience of my own in the vintage business and with that community there are so many collectors and dealers that have objects that do not exist anywhere else in any other collections. They exist in private collections and in the US and Japan. Um, and being able to have those connections through my time in that business was also invaluable. And, and those people are passionate about the objects and they're passionate about what they do and they want to talk and they want to share information and, and we learn from one another. And that is a huge source and unfortunately not a very um, kind of an untapped source that I think is um, there's a lot of information there that hasn't been uh, handled yet. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. Well, and and I want to talk about like this transition that really your book does focus on. It's this point from Western wear as kind of more work wear into the American fashion lexicon. So post-World War II, you note that, quote, companies accustomed to selling garments to the manual laborer increase their efforts to accommodate the changing demographic and attract a new strata of customers. So how is this customer base for Western wear changing around this time? And then how did these companies respond with their marketing efforts post-World War II and then as we start to move forward into the Cold War era? Right. Um, this is, uh, yeah, I mean, this, I'm glad you picked up on that because that was really sort of the crux of my, of my argument is uh, looking at the garments themselves. Um, of course, there were changes. There were slight changes in cut and fit and style. There was changes in materials as textile technologies change. But by and large, we're talking about essentially the same garments with minor changes that had been used as work clothes, as laborers clothes, as ranchers and cowboys clothes, being uh, sold with no change or with very minor changes to a kind of mass market, middle market American audience. And there's a few reasons why, you know, this happens and there are larger cultural shifts that happened around it. And I mean, kind of like the turn toward more casual dress, the ability for, for men and women to wear casual apparel in different settings. It was becoming a little bit more socially acceptable. So the kind of things like, um, say, Western shirting and jeans that would have just been worn, you know, for labor would be worn in um, outdoor, like suburban backyard barbecues. Right. And mm -hmm. that was OK. Companies like Lee and Wrangler, their parent company, Bluebell, these are big industries. They own multiple factories, are producing a lot of garments. They have wide networks of distribution. 
it's not that easy to just start to change their designs and start making something new. It would be mm-hmm. like, I don't know, that would just be like turning an oil tanker. It would just be a huge endeavor because again, all this stuff is made, um, everybody owned their own factories. They were made in the US by one company. So instead of doing that, they kind of just start marketing differently. They kind of start looking at different demographics, different spaces in which to um, offer these garments, different ways to sell them as leisure wear, as sportswear, as kind of comfortable clothes for every day, as opposed to work clothes. So the creativity is less so in changing the way the clothes look, but their creativity starts to come in fits and starts and sometimes kind of awkwardly in the way that they're that they're sold and available to a public that was a little bit more ready for dressing this way. Yeah. Well, you know, and at the same time as the companies begin actively diversifying their customer base to non-laborers, it exactly coincides with the Western as a film genre peaking in its heyday. So how did this confluence feed into itself? Because there's this growing market for Western-themed goods and clothing in the 1950s. And I'm also curious, we can't not talk about country music around this same time as well. And and how did that feed into fashion trends also? There's a real cross-pollination from both sides. The movies, music is going to increase visibility. It's also going to inspire people. It's not so much about, you know, the clothes or the garments. It's also about then perhaps connecting the look to a star or a celebrity mm-hmm. or something. Or a lifestyle. Right, absolutely. Or a very romanticized lifestyle. You know, some costume choices were more showy than others in, in film, I should say, but also on TV too. The only kind of dip in Western movie popularity was when they started becoming more Westerns on TV. So it wasn't that the genre was less popular, it just like access, you know, it changed a little bit. Country music, as you mentioned, well, country as a genre, I mean, it comes from, you know, folk traditions, but the industry based in Nashville was professionalized by, you know, the 1950s. It was a business. It was kind of the the Hollywood of, of music in terms of producing stars, producing glamorous aesthetics and getting that image out there. And then you start to see the the really um, the bespoke rhinestone cowboy suits from people like Nudie, people like Manuel, more visible. So not to say that, you know, the average American was seeing Hollywood stars or country singers and trying to copy exactly how they dressed, but it was in, it was in the air. It was in the mix. It was, you know, an option. And especially if, you know, performers are coming out completely, you know, fringed and bedazzled and embroidered, kind of wearing a more toned down version for every day doesn't seem too out of step, you know, with what was, with what was going on. To, you know, to wear a more understated cowboy look when there was such a range of examples in popular culture wasn't super surprising. Right. I think some people who are fashion historians might be surprised, though, however, how influential Western wear was on children's styles during the 1950s. Mm-hmm. Why Why do you think this is? And um, also, would you tell us a little bit about what I feel is one of the strangest fashion promotions I've ever heard of? And it was directed towards children where what was the burn your own brand campaign for kids? And how did this figure into the landscape of 1950s children's wear? <laughs> I'm glad you brought that up. <laughs> Um, all right. Well, to, to back up a little bit, I mean, we do have this 
presence in pop culture, Western movies, TV series, also just visuals, comic books, print culture, everything. Um, you could get pretty much anything with a cowboy or a cowgirl. I mean, fewer, but they there were, you know, cowgirls in the mix. Thinking about things for kids, I mean, I don't focus a ton on children's wear, but TV shows, pop culture for kids, there's a little bit more room for play, right? There's a little bit more room for more direct kind of branding. Like mm -hmm. an adult man is not going to wear a sweater with Hopalong Cassie or the Lone Ranger's picture on it, but a little boy or a little girl could, like it's cute, right? Um, and there were many, many tie-ins between different manufacturers, um, including Wrangler Bluebell that I looked at, but so many others, Sears Robo, and Montgomery Ward and big catalogs as well to do cross promotion and garments that feature, you know, Lone Ranger and Hopalong Cassidy and Roy Rogers, right? And also just the, the economy at the time, that post-war economic boom we hear so much about. Well, the children's market more broadly, whether that's clothing, toys, accessories, like just cute things for kids was seen as a bigger um, a bigger market and a bigger possibility for parents to you know spend a little bit of, of money on you know that affluence so it it sort of translates really well to western toys western novelties and then by extension western clothing mm -hmm. and some of it's subtle and some of it's not right some of it just might be a little bit of a cowboy shirt and some of them look like straight up costumes um but that's kind of i mean that that brings the that element of play into it but it also brings this idea of from children from a very young age emulating what was presented to them as you know heroic or or grand or exciting and and um all the roots of where that imagery is coming from a burn your own brand is very specific to lee so lee jeans when they did their redesign of the riders in 1946 changed their patch so when i say patch that's you know the patch on the back of a pair of jeans the leather brand identification mm -hmm. to the graphic design is the name L-E-E -E, and they're all attached. It looks like something that came off of a branding iron and that was deliberate. Um, it was the, you know, cattle, uh, hot iron branded label, I think was the first language that they used. And that was on all their jeans. And it was a pretty clever bit of marketing and a pretty clever element of graphic design. So for the Western consumer, they might recognize that right away as cattle brand. For a, a middle America, middle market consumer, they might not, but it's still like a really legible label. So they played off the kind of two meanings of the word of the idea of branding um, really since, you know, since the 40s. But they also did this novelty for kids. Um, so when you see the jeans are always really small <laughs> to add an additional leather patch on the other side, kind of top of the back pocket that was blank. And the idea was that at, you kids could go to their Lee salesman or distributor and burn their own brand onto their own pants. So literally branding themselves or at least, you know, their garments and the your own brand could be, well, I mean, they had flyers. It could be just copies of old Western branding graphics and symbols. Mm -hmm. It could be your name. They were thinking like Scout Troop. They were kind of putting all these ideas out there. And they had a little, I mean, I know this from the Lee Archivist, uh, it kind of looks like a hot glue gun, like a little branding tool, a little electric heat element that was used, I guess, in some instances to brand this little bit of leather that the kid would then wear. So it's kind of bringing this, the like a, a part of cattle branding, which was like cowboy's labor into this sort of craft creative play for for children mm -hmm. uh, 
I don't know that it was, it wasn't always so widely done. Like the genes were much more widely distributed than these hot irons were. I see a lot of blank patches. Uh, I see some that are just written on with a marker or a pen or whatever, but it is um, definitely unique and participatory marketing, uh, or I guess I should say branding there. Yeah. I mean, I guess it's the decades past version of, of the type of customization that we see available now, right? Mm -hmm. Albeit with a very dangerous hot iron. (laughs) Yeah. Apparently there's no open flame involved, but like, even so, like you're getting children and like heat elements and encouraging that. I don't know. Sounds risky. (laughs) Yeah. That's the first thing I thought of when I read it in the book. So let's talk about genes more since we're on this topic. You, of course, note that genes first appeared in the women's fashion magazine Vogue in 1935. So Let's talk about the origins of genes for women, specifically within the mass market. How are they different from genes for men at this particular juncture point? How are they promoted and likewise received by female consumers? So I do engage with that kind of um, vogue narrative just because it is it's so often repeated and in context of fashion history, it does stand out because as there's this elite publication and for the first time it's offering, it's presenting genes and for the first time it's genes for women. And what those genes were, were the Lady Levi's that were originally made in 1934. And it was offered as in the context of dude ranch vacationing, so, which was huge at, at the time. But we know that women were already wearing jeans. I mean, they were wearing jeans to work. They were wearing jeans in the West. Were they photographing themselves and making this highly visible? Not really, but a lot of people didn't photograph themselves and make their work wear highly visible. Um, we also know that there were East Coast workwear companies who were making trousers and overalls and coveralls for women. That's actually my next project, so stay tuned. But anyway, <laughs> but the Lady Leva is... is um, in our, you know, generally accepted narrative, the first kind of Western style gene for women. And it was really barely any different from the 501. It was just cut a little wider in the seat and a little wider in the hip to accommodate a curvier shape. And they did a little cute thing with the pink selvage line instead of a red selvage line um, in the denims. It wasn't hugely widely distributed. And the thing about, I think, jeans or trousers for women that gets interesting Um, when you read more about about this history is I think that there's an assumption that as soon as this option was available, women just went for it and that this was somehow, you know, empowering and great. And I think it was a little bit more nuanced than that and a little bit more um, measured depending on where one was coming from. Mm-hmm. So if you think of a Vogue reader, this is um, this is an elite audience. This is someone who might wear something like this to a dude ranch, resort, vacation. It's occasion specific, right? Doesn't mean they were wearing it all the time. It was promoted as, you know, casual attire into the 50s. I should say also Lee and Wrangler were making women's jeans by 47, 49 as well. They were doing a front uh, fly cut similar to the Lady Levi, and they were also doing side zips too. And so was Levi's at that point, like a flat front side zip, what we call like a frontier pants, which is more in line with women's, how women's trousers were, were constructed. So there was a few options by the late 40s already for women's jeans. But, you know, we know a lot of women, women were consuming them, but the context 
really depended again on where you were coming from because there were still connections to this being a workman's garment. Um, and it still carried those connotations. So um, those who were, you know, from a secure social position would maybe see this as something fun and novel and cute and sort of playful. For those who maybe were from a working class background and who sought upward uh, mobility, they were less inclined to kind of jump onto this. Um, I, I residents and call it a trend because it wasn't big enough to be a trend but i mean there was still that connection to labor there was a still that connection to work to uniforms to i mean effectively you know poverty mm -hmm. um so i think like for middle and upper middle class those negative aspects of that didn't resonate quite so much but it was a little bit um more measured when you start getting beyond that when you start getting more to everybody else it wasn't adopted so so easily and conveniently because those connections were still pretty strongly felt yeah. Well, I mean, that makes perfect sense then. One of my favorite advertisements in your book is from 1963. And the caption to the advertisement says, she wears Dior at night and Lee and the sparkling Western sunlight. And I think that is just so, so indicative of exactly what you just touched on. I freaked out when I saw that thing. <laughs> I was like, as a researcher, like few things are so satisfying when you actually have copy from your company saying exactly what you were trying to say and then it proved my point basically um so i it's this it's this silly little print ad for lee westerners like ladies denims i freaked when i saw it because i was like yes i'm right <laughs> yeah i mean that's the quotation and you just see this like blonde woman like taking a serape out of the back of her station wagon right um but they are making a bold and deliberate claim about their consumer's taste level mm -hmm. connecting it to christian Dior, who would have still been a household name at that point even though you know he was dead but the, that that resonance with high fashion and trying to um make a very strong connection between their workwear is uh kind of great and very predictive of course in terms of the rise of de designer denim that we see in the 1970s as well mm -hmm. Lee had another interesting advertising initiative that I'd like to touch on, and I don't know how much more broadly you know about this, but you also note that they, that Lee at this time um, was undertaking a recognition of the African-American market. How did that play out in their advertising, and, and do we know anything about the results of their marketing campaigns targeting Black consumers? Um, great. That was another wonderful surprise. Uh, Lee was the first national workwear company to advertise in Ebony magazine. And Ebony um, was huge, right? A, a vast readership, a general interest readership. So not niche, definitely not Western. I, I will say that the um, Lee made a variety of work clothes. And what we most, what we see, or at least what I've found up to now for the Ebony promotions were kind of the more just standard workwear. So for men, that could be overalls and coveralls, the kind of thing, a, you know, a painter or any kind of working man would, would wear on the job site. Mm -hmm. um, and they did, but they did start doing Lee Riders for teens featuring black models in the, this is in the mid fifties. This is like 54, 55, 56. And in terms of, you know, their motivations, it, the, the documents aren't there, so I can't really speak to that, but at least they were acknowledging that this market mm -hmm. existed and employing, you know, black models to advertise their goods. Um, does that make them advocates of social justice? I don't know if I'd go that far, um, but they were in business and they acknowledged that this was an opportunity. Um, but the styling was 
I mean, pretty much cookie cutter. They, they, the ads looked like identical, almost identical between say the, the ones in the fifties that were uh, published in life magazine that had two white teenagers in jeans. They're kind of waving at one another from different sides of the pages. Well, the one in Ebony was two black teenagers in jeans styled virtually identically. You can tell like she was a little different, like tiny things, but not really trying to um, diversify in terms of the look, but just using different models and um, reception. Well, I mean, my whole study is based so much on production because I was focused on archival records. I didn't have access to much of the reception of that, but they did continue the campaign going. So, I mean, I'm sure it was worthwhile for them as a business to continue selling mm-hmm. um, that market or address, at least addressing its existence. Yeah. I am particularly fascinated by this other advertising tactic, too, that we see in the 1950s especially, and it does transition into the 1960s, um, and it's across the board. It's not necessarily just Western wear specific, but it's father-son promotions. We see them in like GQ, Esquire, Apparel Arts, um, all across the board as those magazines are all intertangled. The titles sometimes changed, but um, let's talk about this in these father-son promotions in the context of Western wear and sportswear for men and boys at the mid-century. Why was this popular, do you think? Uh, That's a great question. And right, why hasn't anyone written about that yet? (laughs) So I think there's there's a lot there. And I think there's a lot there to talk about in terms of how men's wear maintains uh, a degree of consistency. But anyway, um, with the examples I saw, yeah, there's a lot of father, son, like, you know, the jeans are, you know, quote unquote, just like dads, which was something that was repeated over and over by Lee and Wrangler. And then you see it in the visuals as well. And I think it was this notion of, well, one hand, traditionalism, I mean, the sort of more playful stuff, like the references to Dior and things that um, we just talked about with the women's jeans, that was really not done when it came to selling to the men. The men's Western look was quite fossilized, like you'll see ads and visuals that were put out in the 60s that could look, did not look much different from, say, a, a film still from a 1940s Western, right? Mm-hmm. I think, say, quite similar there. And I think the connection between fathers and son and men and boys was this notion of like tradition and continuity that you're kind of taking up the same practices as, you know, the generations before you. And in terms of selling jeans, well, that was bounded with marketing, something that was like, you know, time tested and sturdy and reliable and like all those kinds of qualities that you know these dads were like also supposed to supposed to represent so it plays into um partly the kind of furthering of the sort of western tradition and the way that style didn't change quite so much for the men but also the kind of masculinity that was like Mm -hmm. being communicated and ideally being passed down heritage legacy. Mm -hmm. Those two words come to (laughs) mind immediately (laughs) Mm -hmm. in the context of both. My next question is perhaps a bit removed from that sort of nuclear family dynamic of the father-son promotion, but what about this other association of genes with youth subcultures, rebellion, and rock and roll? How did the Western wear companies handle this market? 
Great question. Uh, there's a lot there. Um, and the Western world companies did not always hand. I mean, I love looking at this evidence because it was often this kind of awkward engagement with wanting to recognize that there was a vast and growing youth culture market that they obviously wanted to sell to, but they were mm -hmm. reticent and didn't really know how. So to back up, there was, um, again, because of the various class associations, there was a connection between genes and, you know, what was called at the time, like juvenile delinquency. There was a lot of schools <laughs> um, going from elementary schools right up through, you know, high schools that, that banned the wearing of jeans or tried to control it or criticize it. Um, of course, you can imagine the criticism were leveled more strongly. And that just <laughs> makes it more appealing. <laughs> of course it does. Of course it does. Um, a lot of the on-screen kind of rebel heroes were wearing jeans you know, like in the big movies, like, like the wild one, but also in all these B movies, all these teen picks, all these films that were uh, specifically directed at youth audiences. There was in the 50s, something called the Denim Council formed. And that was really like a consortium of, of denim um, manufacturers and producers that were really looking to like, fight that negative image. Um, and so they put out these, I mean, I could just say very dorky ads, you know, <laughs> um, uh, Levi's and Lee, and they were all kind of a part of it, but particularly like Levi's had this one with this boy, it was like right for school. And so not only the jeans were like properly fitting, but he was kind of this very buttoned down young man carrying some books under his arm. Like they were, there was a over um, emphasis on how good and, and proper and appropriate genes could be, you know, starting in the 50s. So they were trying to fight that bad reputation, but then they were also trying to sell genes to young people. So they didn't want to, you know, ally with the parents, you know, too, too much. Um, a lot of the Western flavor and the cowboy flavor does sort of go away in these ads. Um, a lot of the young people are de depicted as even if they're, you know, it's supposed to be kind of high school, but almost I think what we would recognize today is like very collegiate, like very kind of Oxford shirt paired with the jeans and loafers, like kind of very mm -hmm. buttoned down. In terms of subculture, well, that starts, um, you start to see a little bit of uh, Wrangler did this amazing promotion trying to pick up off on the 60s dance craze dances and offered a record with a song called The Wrangler Stretch to company their stretch jeans. <laughs> like it was like a store giveaway promotion. Um, this did not pick up. It did not become the next twist or whatever the next novelty dance was. Um, it was, you know, but they, they were trying. And what's what the appeal of these kinds of clothes, I mean, when you're talking about Pendleton shirts or um, jeans, of course, to young people in subcultures, whether that's, you know, like low rider culture or surfing, or hot rodders is that they were cheap and they were accessible and they were effectively blank canvases. Mm. So a lot of young people were wearing them anyway, but they were styling them in their own ways. By the mid sixties or just before this notion of jeans being, you know, quote unquote, right for school or appropriate, those battles had largely been won. Mm -hmm. And the brands were looking a little bit more to try to engage young people. So that would be trying to engage sometimes with bringing in elements of style, like from surfer looks or bringing in elements of style. Um, there's this like ad for Lee's 
that shows like hot rodders. It's supposed to be a hot rod club. And it's just like so painfully rigid and, and it's not even a hot rod in the background. It's just like a stock vintage car. Like they were trying, <laughs> like they were trying and it was awkward. And so they're tentatively trying to engage with things that young people might think are cool using sort of attempts at like hip vernacular in their writing. Um, it, uh, I mean, I, I, I don't think it's too judgmental to say it completely fell flat because I can see, I can imagine even at the time it completely fell flat, but, um, but they were, they were trying, you know, so it's, um, it's definitely in- interesting to, to see how they're engaging with that. Well, it's just yet another example of the fashion system doing what it always does, which is trying to cash in on uh, the cachet of subcultural cool, right? Mm-hmm. And we see it time and time again, like immediately, like following the French Revolution with the Enquiable and the Merveilleuse, it was that same kind of subcultural style that gets pulled into the mainstream fashion system. And here it is again, 150 years later, this happens all the time. You know, there was Mm -hmm. grunge and then there was Marc Jacobs. and, and And it's interesting to see the ways in which fashion tries to capitalize on that cachet. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And, but it's funny because I mean, these weren't, that I mean, a lot of the, for the brands I looked at, you know, the advertising was largely controlled in house, mm-hmm. right? So this is like not sophisticated kind of cool hunting research going on. This was purely observation. And on one on one hand, you got to hand it to them. I mean, especially some of these, you know, these are regional based brands in Kansas, in North Carolina, trying to emulate, you know, California surfers. Right. Or or hot rodders or, um, you know, car culture that, that they may or may not have ever seen. So it uh, yeah, I mean, got to give them credit at least for trying. <laughs> yes. Yes. Well, we don't have too much longer in our time that we have allotted today. I do want to ask you about the final chapter of your book. The final chapter of your book kind of brings things full circle. At the top of the episode, we kind of talked about how Western wear had always been a hybrid of sartorial practices of different cultures, uh, native populations, um, European people, the influence of, of Mexico and Spain here as well. And one section within this chapter, or is it like a subsection of this chapter, you have named appropriation, authentication, and hybridization. You're talking very specifically here about the Native American influence on Western wear. And so I'm hoping for our listeners, we can flesh this out fuller. Like how are each of these, and they're very nuanced, they sometimes overlap, but How is appropriation, authentication, and hybridization evidenced in Western wear? Well, when I talk about uh, Western wear as a hybrid style, I'm using that really loosely kind of as an umbrella term, just Mm -hmm. to kind of maybe get people thinking about the, the plenty of stylistic inspiration, not because I think that there were or are, you know, kind of pure cultures that to start from, uh, and not because I think that these the exchanges and these influences took place on an equal playing field. They didn't. It was mm-hmm. not an equal power dynamic happening. But it's something to kind of get people thinking about. Um, this isn't one unified Americana look. It never was. It was a a, a kind of pastiche of different of different things. Because if we look closely, we can pick up on you know all those different influences which you know we we already did so i think appropriation i mean i think that's what we're more familiar with 
today. And there's a reason in the last 10 or so years, this has been more um, outside of just fashion studies and outside of just academia, but in the public consciousness. And is what people kind of now are called out and being able to be made accountable for. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's basically taking of culturally specific art designs or traditions, normally of more marginalized individuals or cultures and bringing them into the dominant culture or, you know, capitalizing on that or kind of manipulating them without citation and and, uh, selling them back to a wider population. I feel like uh, there's a difference when you go into that sphere straight on with an act of recognition and reverence. And and it's when that doesn't happen that we start to wander into this territory of appropriation. Right. And I mean, with me and my examples, it's like, you know, in discussing some of them, I mean, some of them are just outright racist and ugly. Some of them It was probably representations that were maybe even intended to be flattering, but they're still stereotypical, so it doesn't really do any any good. Um, But a lot of the reactions I would get occasionally be like, oh, well, you know, it was the 50s and, you know, this big cringe or eye roll. It's like, true. But I don't think we should be so smug about how far we've come because like clearly it's still happening. Yeah, exactly. It's still happening. It might not be kind of as the, maybe the cruder examples aren't as visible, but the, the, the kind of damage is still being done. And in fact, has the ability with like fast fashion, these massive global networks to do effectively more damage or separate the copy from its source you know, in, in a way that's all, it becomes harder and harder to, to track or be accountable for. So, so. And that's how some of that erasure that we were talking about mm-hmm. happens. That's where it starts. Oh, hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. Cultural authentication is not a term that's like as, as well known, but I think it is important because I think we see that really strongly with the example of Pendleton, specifically Pendleton Woolen Mills. So for example, similar to how Indigenous beadwork is definitely seen as an Indigenous practice, Indigenous tradition, there's all these beautiful variations depending on, you know, who's making it and where they're from and how their culture is informing it. Even though, I mean, the glass beads, you know, originally did come from Europe, but there's no doubt that beadwork is Indigenous tradition. They made it their own. And I see the Pendleton's working in a similar way. You know, the jacquard looms, the raising of the sheep, that that was those particular sheep anyway, were coming from Europe and it was a white owned company, but the, the goods were very much incorporated into uh, Native American design idioms and effectively they also, you know, made, made that their own. Yeah. And for any of our listeners who are maybe not um, necessarily familiar with the Pendleton history, could we give them a little quick snapshot of the company and their um, offerings? So Pendleton Woolen Mills is a company that um, has been around since the late 19th century in Pendleton, Oregon. So again, Pacific Northwest, very different region from our other examples of, you know, the West. They made blankets and they made apparel. They started with the black blankets. So these are Colorful jacquard woven blankets are sometimes referred to as trade blankets because they were, but also in Indigenous traditions in the Pacific Northwest where they're from, blankets were also worn as robes. Mm -hmm. So while this um, company didn't necessarily start with the idea of making them as apparel, they quickly realized that that was happening and that was an option and, and they were. A lot of the designs and motifs going way back 
were what we would call today, and, and I, I mean what they did at the time, kind of native inspired. So no specific nation were, that, that was a single attribution. They're kind of pulling design details from and, and reinterpreting them from different communities. So if we were to stop there for a 21st century person, we would probably say, well, that's appropriation, right? That's borrowing elements freely and inconsistently from one culture and putting them to your own and then selling it. However, going back historically with the specific example of Pendleton, the consumer base was mostly indigenous people. That was a massive part of their consumer base. Mm -hmm. They bought the blankets, they, they wore them as robes, they used them in their homes, they offered them as gifts. Um, and this is still part of their, you know, cultural practice. So that's what makes it kind of dif distinct. Yeah. And it's interesting. I think Pendleton is a fascinating example of what you were talking about in terms of hybridization. And I so admire the Pendleton designs, but I have never pulled the trigger to buy one because I kind of always felt a little bit weird about it. Like, what are your thoughts on Pendleton today? And like, can any of this all ultimately be reconciled under an umbrella of cross-cultural exchange? Well, Pendleton's been interesting. I mean, they were things were particularly buzzy. I mean, this is about 10 years ago now, but they did a collaboration with Opening Ceremony, which at the time mm -hmm. was, you know, quite well known as a as a fashionable brand, which was pretty different for this small, still um, vertically integrated, still family owned company in the Pacific Northwest. I think in terms of reconciling it, it's not up to me as a white historian to reconcile something that is culturally valuable to another group of people that I do not speak for. <laughs> so I think that I mean I think that we can see the engagement of um, indigenous designers today, whether that's like Ginu Denim does their own Pendleton design. They're an indigenous um, denim company, mm -hmm. um, does their own designs working with Pendleton, um, Korean Emmerich. They are, you know, and, and these are companies that are making beautiful work and putting it out there to the world at large. You know, it's it's for sale on the internet. Um, it is for, you know, it's out for there. everyone. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that I think it's best to turn to, you know, indigenous people for insight. And we see that those interactions in the work that they're that they're doing today. For me, as a historian, I mean, I highlight some examples of how this was happening in the time, how it was existing in the historical record, and discuss some of those contradictions and note that they they were on ongoing and are ongoing. Um, but in terms of any kind of large scale reconciliation, I just I just don't think that's for someone like me to say. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, and, and speaking of cross-cultural or perhaps even international exchange, Western wear at large is no longer siloed as an American phenomenon, which is fascinating. Youth, however, argue that it is indeed a national style. So do you feel it's specifically a national style? And then also, part two of the question, what do you feel the legacy of American Western wear is to this broader global fashion community today? Well, Western wear's presence is absolutely global, and it has been for a while, right? We can go back to like the spaghetti Westerns and go back to that. That influence is there. Um, when I say it's a national style, I think that even though it exists internationally, I believe that it's still recognized as something that is, you know, American. American. 
Yeah, I just hope that um, with with my work, uh, the idea of what's American is just opened up a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what's uh, the moment that that I focus on? I mean, this was something that was quite a regional aesthetic that comes out of kind of specific jobs, specific places in different climates in the 19th century, but is by the time I'm talking about definitely a national style. You can see elements of these aesthetics all over the country and internationally too, and actually really sought out um, after internationally. So I think that, I mean, and there's also, I mean, that's going on still. I mean, there are passionate Western wear collectors all over the world, Australia, Europe, the UK, um, you mentioned Japan. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. Especially for denim. Um, they appreciated it there but long before Americans kind of caught on um, to why that might be interesting. But I think even in those places, even though, um, you know, they, they still recognize this as coming out of American traditions. But now that it's in, in terms of high fashion, well, it just kind of gets tossed into the soup, just like a lot of other signifiers as kind of a place, a site for creative play. And we've definitely seen more of it lately. Um, so that's been kind of interesting as well. Sonia, thank you so much for joining us on Dress this week. This was a fascinating examination of the history of Western wear. And really, I would say we've only scratched the tip of the iceberg in terms of what's covered in your book. And I think you uh, alluded to the fact that you are continuing on this mission with another project coming up soon. (laughs) <laughs> right. Well, I mean, a little bit different. Um, but what's next for me is I'm actually I'm curating an exhibition at the Center for Craft in North Carolina that opens next month about uh, contemporary denim makers who are using old machines, old traditions, uh, specialty denims. But um, hopefully my next plan is to start thinking about the same kind of production, but thinking about what's happening on the East Coast uh, mm-hmm. for women a little bit before. So we'll see how that would uh, fit in or maybe change some of some of uh, what I brought up today. You heard it, listeners. Stay tuned. <laughs> Sonia, thank you so much. Thank you. It's great. Sonia, thank you so much for joining us. What a fascinating conversation. I, for one, found it very interesting, April, the role that not only Hollywood played in popularizing Western wear, but how concerted marketing and advertising campaigns worked to reconceptualize what had previously been regarded, you know, as practical working class garments and then resituate them in the realm of high fashion. Mm-hmm. And there, there's no denying that Western wear remains a point of inspiration for many big name designers today and, you know, worn by celebrities the world over. We, of course, have fashion superstar Little Nas X, who has been seen on many a red carpet in the last couple years rocking Western wear-inspired looks. Those are by the likes of brands like Versace and Gucci. And then, of course, other fashion houses like Saint Laurent, Stella McCartney, Maison Martin Margiela, and Prada have explicit Western wear looks in their 2022 and 2023 collections. So, you know, it would appear the mythical West is never not going to be a source of inspiration. Or apparently a source of coveting something because I currently have my eye on a very specific pair of cowboy boots by Aurora James's brand, Brother Bailey's, um, and they do handcrafted, sustainable, ethical footwear. And these particular cowboy boots that I have now wanted for a couple years now, they have an Adam and Eve motif 
in oh, on and they're kind of like hand painted and like embossed they're so beautiful they're so so good and i i bring them up partially just to kind of like say that sonia and i didn't delve into the realm of cowboy boots too much in our discussion that was very intentional because this is a very rich topic and i feel like it's best treated with its very own episodes so listeners um, you might have to wait just a little bit for that one but if you'd like to hear more about western footwear styles which aren't necessarily always only exclusive to boots, uh, let us know and we will make that happen. Yeah, and it's such a fascinating history. As we know, we talked about it a little bit on our Men in Heels episode, if that gives you any insight into what that history looks like. So that does it for us today, dress listeners. May you consider the intersection of cultures residing in your closet next time you get dressed. Remember, we always love hearing from you. So if you'd like to write to us, you can do so via email at dressed at iheartmedia.com. You can also DM us on Instagram at dressed underscore podcast, which is where we post images and reels accompanying each week's episodes. And just a reminder that we've now started doing hashtags on our Instagram posts. So you can easily look up episodes once you've listened to them on Instagram. And the hashtag for this episode is dressed292. Thank you, as always, to our listeners and our producers, Casey Pegram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio that makes the show possible each week. More Dress coming your way on Thursday. Dress, the history of fashion, is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.